This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk. It's not weekly. We're bi-weekly now, and it's not just news and... Well, this episode... I need to figure <laughs> out... What, what are we new, doing we, here? We need a new lead-in. This is the Book Riot Podcast, where we talk about book things. Yes. Hello Sometimes and welcome. Sometimes it's new and cool. Sometimes it's old and boring. But we're talking about books you know, together in, in, think, in conversation. I think next week is episode 350. And that seems like a good time to write a new introduction to the show. <laughs> well, let me blow your mind. This is episode 350. <laughs> well, then, even better. All right. So next time you hear... Well, yeah, next time. This is the last. So we're going we're gonna to roll taps for the old header. Uh, if you're attached to that, maybe see someone about that. Um, <laughs> but so it goes. But this is episode 350 recording on Thursday, January 30th, 2020. I'm Jeff. She's Rebecca. Coming to you from the, the Patronus that is bookriot.com. Oh, Kinda we're the, a Patronus now. It's just like, it's just like, a, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling that lives in your heart, really. <laughs> I, I think is. of Book Riot as like a, we're like a Voltron creation. Yeah, there you go. An armada, maybe. A digital sure. armada. That's what I'm gonna. Uh, digital next, armada. The, the next VC startup uh, <laughs> I want to see be a digital armada. Of things it sounds like a bunch of hackers. Really, really. Six months from now, we're gonna get like a TechCrunch press release from some other company about their fifty million dollars Series A for their digital armada, and be like, "Oh, we should have done it." I think I could go out and get a million dollars in seed funding with the name alone. Yeah. Done. Digital mod. Mm. I'm in. I like right. it. Right. Yeah. You just make a bunch of other words around it. I mean, <laughs> this is all that tech funding is anyway, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know anymore. I'm not sure. It's scooters. It's scooters in software as service, I think, anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, let's do a sponsor and then that'll give us a chance to like come back to earth and say things that matter to other humans. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk Ride Paddle. Walk, Ride, Paddle is a captivating memoir of Senator Tim Kaine's physical journey through the Virginia wilderness, but it is also a unique and ultimately optimistic perspective on these pivotal moments in history, offering inspiration, wisdom, and hope. With immediacy and honesty, Kaine pulls back the curtain to reveal his inner thoughts during such monumental times. And Kane's storytelling gift and wise observations offer a fascinating glimpse into the mind of a seasoned politician and outdoor enthusiast. Walk, Ride, Paddle is available everywhere audiobooks are sold on April 9th. It is narrated and written by Tim Kaine, Virginia senator and former Democratic vice presidential candidate. It's a compelling account of one man's journey across hundreds of miles of Virginia wilderness and a moving testament to the optimistic spirit of America. So make sure to check out Walk, Ride, Paddle by Tim Kaine. And thanks again to Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle, for sponsoring this episode. All right. Follow up. I... Um, I put a header on the episode recorded yesterday that, if you're listening to the show, you've probably heard by now, where Vanessa joined us to talk about American Dirt. On that header, right after we recorded, within the the hour, Flatiron released a statement to many, many press outlets, not the Patronus known as Book Riot, I might mention, um, about how they were apologizing for certain aspects of the American Dirt rollout and promotion, um, canceling. Cummins' existing book tour schedule and replacing it with uh, a to-be-announced series of town halls that are supposed to be conversations with relevant parties. I'm not sure what that's going to be, um, which seems 
useful and the apology for the most egregious stuff, which we talked about, the mm-hmm. barbed wire centerpieces, um, the, I don't actually think we talked about it because we didn't have the receipts in front of us about how in one of the early press releases, I think it was the one that went in the insert with the galleys that went out, mentioned, it says that Janine Cummins' husband was an undocu- undocumented immigrant, implying that he was from Mexico or South America when really he was from Ireland and then came over as part of the um, relief efforts in Ireland after the crash over there and just really botching it six ways from Sunday. And then and then the bit about how they've gotten some, they're concerned about common safety and booksellers involved, which I think we mentioned is loaded language. Um, when you say we're getting a lot of criticism, mostly from the Latinx community, and also we're worried about her safety, I think it paints a picture of what they're trying to say that is not great. I do, I, I would believe that the tour they put together, they put together in spaces and with security concerns and just even crowd control measures and the mm-hmm. right size spaces that they were unable to, I think they would have been unreasonable to continue as is. I would be, I would have preferred if they had couched it a little bit differently. So yeah, I that, agree. That's, I the, think... that's the thing. What do you think, Rebecca? What, what do you yeah, take out I of think... all that? I mean, it's good that they addressed things. I think they continue to not address them successfully or satisfyingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I've said a couple of times on our company Slack, I think they, they really need some like PR damage control expert language happening there because this the latest thing about we're concerned for her safety is really preventable and if they recognize that it's problematic and pointed language and they didn't care, that's also interesting. Like we don't know, but the spectrum there is it didn't occur to anybody that this sounds like you're saying that the Latinx community that's criticizing this book is dangerous. Right. <laughs> like that's a problem. It's also a problem if you realize that's what you're saying and you're fine with it. Um, I, I also do think it's believable. Like we've experienced all along, we, we've experienced it and we've seen it in like all sort of aspects of publishing and from all points along the political spectrum, um, criticism and heated feelings of issues that in a very small percentage of people do rise to the level of threat making. And so I also think it's completely plausible that threats were made against Janine Cummins. We've both existed long enough on the internet to know that like in any case where people are upset, someone mm-hmm. will be unhinged just in, just in the group of people it's likely. Um, I just think they shouldn't have mentioned that part. Like the message here should have been, we recognize that we screwed up and we are either canceling this tour and these appearances or we're making some changes to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't need to address the safety part, because there's really no way to say that without it sounding bad, even if it's a valid and real element of the decision. Yeah, right. I think they need to talk less because the talking more is not helping them. Anything that's not I'm sorry and we screwed up is not helping them, I think, mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, anyway, I- I'm not sure if that means anything. You and I were talking in a different context this morning that this is a big enough deal now and enough enough um, damage has been done to many parties, including those in the Latinx community, that I think there's a higher chance it is a real negative exemplar than maybe I even thought three days ago, that this would be something that that's a chance for people to see what the consequences really are of, of not getting this right. And I use that in all the ways mm. um, that could be construed there. And maybe it's Maybe it's a turning point in in this kinds of thing. Now, I hope it means 
I hope it doesn't mean let's just not touch these own voices things at all, because that's a fear, right? Like, this is charged, and we're concerned we're going to get dinged, and and more than dinged, if we don't do and please everyone exactly all the time. I think another part of it is you have to learn and do the work and get it right and also be willing to be criticized here. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what, if anything, Flatiron could do to throw... You know, to to appease the people that are most upset, to do the right thing. I, I'm not sure that pulling the book writ large is the right thing either. I, it's a problem I don't have the right answer to. Just thinking of it from their point of view, is pulling the book the right thing? Is not having any tours? Is sort of would w- going to Oprah and saying, Oprah, we we kindly and, and gratefully ask that you not do this thing. I'm not sure that would do it either. I think that brings up a whole host of other questions. I think they've got to take their lumps. I think they have to be, I think these town halls are a good idea. I think they could be done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Oprah has said that her, you know, Apple TV plus ultimate diamond, I can't remember what the name of the thing is now, <laughs> episode with Jeannie Cummins willing, this will this will be a topic. The, the, the book is a topic, but then the, the discourse around the book will also be an explicit topic and have some guests relevant there. That sounds interesting. It sounds like that could go sideways a hundred million different ways. Um, I'm just I'm just not sure where it goes from here. Early indications are that it will debut at the number one New York Times bestseller list for hardcover fiction, selling somewhere in the order of forty thousand copies in hardcover. Not not a surprise. I think mm-hmm. there's there's enough of a community that doesn't know anything about this or doesn't care, and I think that's part of the problem. That the Oprah immature enough. And the publicity they've done will get it over the hump there. Now, I guess the, the thing will be interesting. What does second week and third week sales look like? Um, yeah. yeah, this was manufactured to debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Like the the marketing was intended to achieve that, mm-hmm. and it has. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to continue to follow that story. Um, if you see other things that would be good follow up items from this, uh, send us an email podcast at bookriot.com. I, we should have guessed this. I should. I feel like I really should have guessed yeah, this next one. I, Take the next one. I do too. Um, Reagan Arthur, who formerly was the executive VP and publisher, um, or sorry, she was the senior VP at Little Brown, has been named to be the executive VP and publisher of Knopf, Pantheon, and Shocken um, to take Sunny Meadows uh, to take Sunny Meadows' seat. She'll be the first woman to head up Knopf. Only the fourth person ever to head up. Knopf. And um, I think it's remarkable that she's coming from an outside publishing house. Random House especially um, tends to promote from within publishing. Often you you rise in the ranks. And Reagan Arthur has been at Little Brown for um, for as long as I've been in books, and I think for longer than that, um, and has risen like really notably over the last decade from having her own imprint um, to then being the senior VP uh, and publisher uh, at Little Brown. And you know she's she's ready for a position like this what's what was most interesting to me about this announcement was that um that there had been conversations prior meta's sunny meta's death was um unexpected but conversations had already begun inside prh about who should succeed him and in this piece with publishers weekly um the ceo of prh madeline mcintosh says that um in discussion sunny meta had identified reagan arthur as his first choice and that arthur had sat down with meta um, a couple of times they'd had conversations and um and discussed what that might look like i i think this makes 
so much sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Her sensibilities, as we've seen them in the books that she chose for her imprint and the way that Little Brown is run, um, do that mix that Sunny Meadow was known for of um, commercially and literarily critically appealing fiction. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how she takes that and evolves it into into whatever the next direction is. I wouldn't expect like a huge shakeup. I think there's no. you know there's real legacy at Knopf that I think anybody coming in would want to honor. And they've been doing what they do very well. So there's also no need for like someone new to come in and change the whole thing up. Um, going to be really interesting to see you know what she does though and what the list starts to look like um, with a woman in the seat for the first time, especially um, as Meta had famously published, you know, some of those old guard, the old guard white guys um, will be interesting to see. Yeah. And we've been doing this long enough now that we've seen um, Reagan Arthur jump up. Yeah. You know, she had an imprint at mm-hmm. Little Brown, then Little Brown, or maybe even she was an editor, then had her own imprint, then Little Brown, and now this. So we've been, it doesn't take, it can it can happen pretty quickly in these things. You get a couple hits at a sub-imprint, and you get moved up, and then you do well, and then you move over. I think Knopf, that, that chair is probably the most prestigious editorial chair in publishing. I think so. That FSG, you could talk me into. FSG, I think, does more poetry. Kind mm-hmm. of, like, I think if some of it depends on what area you're interested in. But I think Knopf is probably the that chair. Again, some of it is legacy. Like, there's only four people. It goes back to Alfred A. Knopf, who was, you know, maybe mm-hmm. the most influential outside of <sighs> Bennett Cerf, the most influencing single person in the history of American publishing. Um, that chair is meaningful in its own way. Um, and I, I should have thought about that. I, I, yeah. I wasn't even doing an internal yeah. catalog of who I've considered because I don't follow it too closely. And we were just like, who's going to take this over and how do you take it over? I think I assumed that they were surprised at Knopf that they were going to need someone in this seat. So yeah. knowing that the discussions had already been occurring and that Sunny Meadow was part of it, I think is also, it's really great. And people do like there, as we've said, she's only the fourth person to hold this position, people do this job for decades. And it will be interesting to see um, what she can do over a couple of decades of, you know, bringing out new voices and what that how that mix of literary work that is also commercially appealing and successful and has a a long tail. Um, Knopf books tend to be sellable for a long time. Um, What that's going to look like over the next 10 or 20 years. It certainly looks different now than it looked a decade ago. And I think um, the literary landscape and the internet have a lot to do with that. But I think we're also still, you know, seeing how that's going to change. Um, I'm not sure what to say about this next story other than the language is very strong and we yeah. haven't seen anything quite like this digital book world, which is a conference um, that happens around digital books, speakers, panels for people, publishers, authors, you know, services having to do with digital books, has banned Macmillan employees to the next conference in response to the library embargo. And they also went on to create a library scholarship, which is basically free passes to the event. Um, Striking to me to go this far as a trade organization, to me, um, also, we get the thing we get with these stories about anecdata about one library user who also <laughs> bought a lot of books, right? Which doesn't help our ongoing lack of data. I mean, the, the truth is, the lack of data about what the effect of having readily available ebooks are to publishers' revenue 
writ large. And without having that, it's hard to have much of a conversation, I think, in my yeah, mind about yeah. this. This comes on the heels. I think it's a direct response to Macmillan CEO John Sargent appearing at the American Library Association conference last week and getting himself into some hot water. There's a Publishers Weekly piece that we can link to about that if you want to get in mm-hmm. into it, where he acknowledges that some of the black box and the lack of data is because of Amazon and because Macmillan has data that they receive from Amazon. But as you can imagine, the non-disclosure agreements that publishers get from Amazon around this data are absolutely bonkers and he's not going to violate it. So he's basically standing in front of the ALA saying, I have seen numbers. I cannot share them with you. You're just going to have to believe me that this decision that we're making is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, got pressed on it by librarians. It does seem that Sargent ultimately also acknowledged some of the harm in the way that he has approached the conversation, at least, and made some apologies. This was, I was just kind of eyebrow raisy, I guess, about seeing this because I don't know that it matters. Like, I think it's um, Digital Book World is clearly wanting to establish publicly where they stand on this issue Mm -hmm. and whose side they're taking and that they're taking the side of libraries. And maybe that's a moral and ethical choice. Maybe it is a strategic one because of what DBW does Mm. with libraries. Maybe it's both. I'm not sure. Um, But I don't know that it actually has any significance to Macmillan. Like, are Macmillan employees actually losing anything by not being able to attend Digital Book World? Um, I had honestly forgotten that Digital Book World was a thing that exists, and we run a publication on the internet about books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I don't know that they're actually achieving anything with like punishment necessarily. And if you're not achieving anything with the punishment. I don't know that you're going to be successful in motivating a change in behavior. Um, so I have some questions about the motivation of this. Are they trying to get a response from Macmillan? Do they think that this will motivate Macmillan to reconsider the ebook embargo? Or is it more of a like, here's an opportunity for DBW to establish what their values are? Um, I, I'm leaning more towards like, that's it. They want to say, here's what we're about. Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess... The, the the language is very personal. Like this is mm-hmm. not the type of thing you generally see in a press release from a yeah. from a from a corporation like this, which in a little in some ways is refreshing. But there's also a reason corporate speak is corporate speak. Like John <laughs> Sargent Walt, like this very casual, like borderline inflammatory language um, about you know invoking basically John Sargent is attacking the memory of his grandmother. I guess is the implication. You're very strange way of going about it, though it does it did remind me that this new p- policy went into effect as of November 1st, basically, if you, if, for those of you who forgotten, I don't know how, limiting libraries to, of any size to purchasing a maximum of one copy of any new book for eight weeks after the new book is released. Um, we're now, as of tomorrow, we're going to be three months into that um, mm-hmm. new policy change. And some of the books that were limited to one copy initially are now av- available to purchase for a cheaper price, and um, in, multi, in more, no, I'm sorry, the cheaper price was the first copy, my mistake. They're now available to per, purchase in, in sums more than one. And presumably, Macmillan is starting to get real data about the actual full-throated deployment of the strategy. And I would presume with every additional month that goes by, the numbers are bearing out their math. Is that fair, Rebecca, to think that? Or what do you think? I'm going to assume so, like unless they reverse course, which would indicate something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if every month they have a recourse, it means they think <laughs> yeah. they're coming out ahead somehow. Uh-huh. 
I guess the other possibility is they've they've internally committed to do it for a set period of time, no matter what, to get you know what what kind of data set do they would consider representative enough to make a decision either way to continue doing it or to to go back. Um, but I think every month that goes by where they haven't reversed course makes it more likely that they're not going to at least into, until forced or some other change happens. Well, there would be so much face to lose in reversing course here of like they have dug in and defended it and not apologized and explained and, you know, <clears throat> said how certain they are that this is the thing that they need to do. Yeah. Um, right. that, I think there would be a lot of um, PR concerns about what would happen and being like, oh, you know, actually, <laughs> this was a bad idea. You know, I guess, <laughs> I mean, is it any worse than ongoing bad press? I guess it feels like maybe it's died down a little, except that we just talked about a story of basically someone taking them out behind the woodshed. My guess is they're really looking from a, at, from yeah. a brass tacks point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, who cares if the PR is right. bad if our numbers are better, I guess, right. which is... Yeah, I, do, I think they're making very practical decisions, and they probably would make the practical choice to reverse course. It would just be painful. <laughs> A tough 12 months <laughs> of PR for Macmillan. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's do another sponsor and then get into some other news. Uh, before we get into the breakdown of the 2019 bestsellers, which I feel like we could really chew on for a minute, let's do some kind of, I guess this is the Adaptation Nation, I don't Popery. know. Popery. Yeah. The Witcher, 50,000 copy reprint, thanks to Netflix. No, no, 500,000. Oh, yes, I looked at it. I just said the wrong word. Five, that is, I, I'm, I'm a little agog. Like, that's the whole, like, Testaments print run. The, the first yeah. print run of the Testaments, a size, an, a remarkable number. I saw a stat that Netflix says that 76 million people watched at least two minutes of The Witcher, which is a very strange metric. That is two such minutes, a weird... But that 76 million people pressed play is wild. So yeah. I guess I'm not surprised when you start thinking, well, only, um, I don't know, what, 5% or 3% of those mm-hmm. people need to buy a book to, to justify this? Uh, makes sense, but boy, yeah. Witcher a hit. Netflix can move units. I guess Huge. it's not a surprise, but you generally don't hear about, and again, I haven't heard, I should say, an adaptation moving this kind of product. Do we? Yeah, n- not usually. Like yeah. This is, I think, interesting because a lot of the Netflix adaptations are of books that were already popular. There you go. So what's yeah. happened, and so it's like, wow, you know, To All the Boys I've Loved Before was already popular, and the Netflix show was a hit, and people are going to keep reading Jenny Han's books, and, and that's all she wrote. But with The Witcher, I don't think many people had read the book. Like I wasn't aware of it. It was, uh, if anything, sort of like a culty classic, and maybe there was some community around it. I don't know, um, but it wrote like its rise to public consciousness was on this Netflix show, and then it was like, oh, this is based on a book. So now I guess there's there's an opportunity to go backwards there. I will be so interested to see how this bears out. Like, are we going to end 2020 with The Witcher as one of the best selling books of the year, having sold half a million copies? Um, I think that's a it's a going from show to book or from movie to book is a much tougher sell than the book into the movie. And I think a lot of it is just the time commitment of like, you know, you saw a two and a half hour movie. Do you want to go spend 10 hours of your life reading a book? Or the other way around is I've already spent the 10 hours. What's another two? Um, I'll be really, 
I have no I have no guesses. I'll be really interested to see how this bears out because I think it would also give us some clues about where else Netflix might be going mm. in adaptation land of you don't need to if this goes well then it doesn't need to be a property that's already popular in book form. It can just be something that you think is great content. You can make a show that's a hit and then it's a hit by itself, but also it might give rise to the book, which then you have the self-feeding thing of the book is out there in the world. People are buying it. They're seeing it. They're talking about it. Other people discover it. They read the books first and then they go watch the series. But we've definitely not seen anything on the order of this. Like The Handmaid's Tale became big again. But I I think that most of that was due to what happened in the election in 2016. And then it also got a boost from the show. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of, I mean, I don't know if Netflix ever said it explicitly, but the I, I think everyone understands that they were trying to do, they were trying to have their own Game of Thrones, basically, yeah. you know, epic fantasy, wildly popular, hardcore fans. You can make content a lot of time, rich world building, very expensive, but and maybe in this case, it's playing a little bit of catch up with the you know um, the cart before the horse here a little bit um, where Game of Thrones was. There was already books being built in. I guess I'd like to know, too, um, there's a lot of things I'd like to know about. It's almost like we'd like more data about book sales and these things. It seems weird to say. This is the Book Riot podcast, a bi-weekly talk show where we want more data. Where we want more data, but like, what, did the, what, did the, what happened to the Game of Thrones book sales as each new series, each new season came out? Was mm. there a wave of each one? Did it crest and then fall? Or however these other things happened? Also in adaptation adjacent land, um, I'm bummed about this, I have to say. I was Me already not too. that excited about this Hunger Games prequel, The Ballad of Arrows and Songbirds, Snakes and Songbirds. <laughs> I cannot remember. Something Songbirds and Snakes. Songbirds snakes and, and Songbirds. Song, yeah. Snakes and Songbirds. It's going to it's going to focus on um who will become President Snow, Coriolanus Snow. So uh, I think our own dearly beloved Liberty called this their Darth Vadering, um mm-hmm. the prequel. Um do we do we have to center these assholes? I do we have to do we have to do this with Joker and, and Anakin and can we not I I don't why do we have to do this? It's, I I don't know and I'm surprised that this is the choice Suzanne Collins mm-hmm. made because the success of the Hunger Games hinged so on Katniss. Largely right, on Katniss yeah. and on not just like Katniss as a character but the very meaningful symbolism of like a young woman a young a girl young woman coming into political consciousness mm-hmm. <laughs> and her own power in very physical ways but also in her emotional and intellectual life that so, like to go back and make the the ground that you're laying for that story be the backstory of the big bad who's mm-hmm. also a rich old white guy in the in the main series is it's it's just not interesting Mm-hmm. I just I think it's just not interesting. Like we know how rich old white guys become the big bads. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because you know the the name Coriolanus is a reference to the G- Roman general Coriolanus, who is best known for putting down rebellions against you know the mm-hmm. Roman regime. Um, so I it, the name's baked in. This is a story of an oppressor. I mean, in a fantasy world. And there's always going to be tension in these fantasy stories, and the world of Hunger Games is one of, you know, instituted, iron grip, systematized oppression, really, almost to an absurd degree, you know, in in its representation. So I'm not sure what's going to be interesting here uh, at all. I I wish it wasn't 
and maybe it'll come out that he's the antagonist, but it's just a younger version of them. Um, but I, I was a little bummed to say that to see that I. Yeah, I'm disappointed. All it'll right, make, it'll make our buy sell hold conversation on the summer preview. <laughs> Yeah, it, it definitely will. All right, let's break, let's look at this breakdown of 2019 bestsellers. Is there anything that jumps out to you as being the most interesting? Hmm. You know, the headline here, I think, is what the headline that Publishers Weekly puts on it, I think, is the interesting part of the story that mm. getting on the list isn't the problem, staying there is. Yeah. <laughs> that really? it, Back to American Dirt, actually, for a minute. Right. right? Yeah, that yeah. like becoming is the exception to the rule. But many of the books that sold really well, they make it onto the list for a week or two. Mm-hmm. And then they are just overtaken by another new book that's doing really well. Or ultimately, all the new books that have a moment are overtaken by Evergreen Backlist is really, I think, is really the story there. Um Interesting to see that Penguin Random House has 40% of hardcover bestsellers. They publish about 50% of the books in the industry. It's interesting. HarperCollins at 15.5, Hachette at 15, Macmillan at 12.7%, and Simon & Schuster at 9.6. You know, they do rankings of other presses that appeared on the bestsellers list. Like the bestsellers list is dominated, excuse me, 92.5% of the bestsellers in hardcover in 2019 were from the big five, um, which is the first thing to notice. Like that if you're going to have a good shot at making it onto the bestsellers list, you need, you very likely need to be published by one of the big five. And that has to everything to do with the budgets behind those books. Almost always. Um, I would love to see, breakdowns of some of the smaller press titles that made it there and what kind of word of mouth led to it. Um, but I do think the, I think PW nailed it here that a, a wide array of titles appear on the bestsellers yeah. list over the course of a year, but a very consistently predictable selection of titles are the bestsellers of the year with the exception of whatever, maybe the one sensation was that year. Um, but it's so much of it is backlist. Um, and most things don't spend a lot of time on the bestsellers list. Was there, what, what were you thinking? I I think that's it too. Um, that big publishers can manufacture a one week appearance on a bestseller list, but after that it's out of their hands, which we kind of know, right. You know, um, between publicity and advertising and distribution and just getting shelf space, both literal and figurative. Um, they can get a certain number, you know, and, and also here's the other thing. You don't have to sell that many copies, frankly, to make the bestseller list. Like if you sell four or 5,000 copies in hardcover for fiction, you'll be on the top 20 for book scans, uh, bestsellers for that week. The ones that really interesting me are the ones that don't ever become number one, but also stay on for a long time. And a lot of those are the kinds of books we tend to pick for buy, sell. We've picked for buy, mm-hmm. sell, hold. They're the, um, the water dancers, the yeah. nickel boys, uh, what was the other one I was just looking at? I can't remember. But they, they were never number one. They're not the um, the one, the kinds of things that appear on number one are your uh, John Grisham's and your Lee Child's. Those typically debut at number one. And they stay. And then those things seem to fall pretty quick, right? They just do so many of them. But these steady middle, these middle sellers that sell a lot, I think those are the kinds of books that 
I don't know. I guess I'm more interested in those, maybe because I'm a I'm a pseudo hipster and like the most popular books I'm not interested. But what are these books that are selling six thousand copies a week for ten weeks? Like that's that means something that's hard to know. I'm guessing there's a lot of way, and that's just an independent bookstore phenomenon, maybe a literary internet, like the kind of people that are plugged in and they find it over time. They find they get recommendations from other kinds of places because it's not a PR machine or like mass market word of mouth thing. It's some other function to get those people to, to stay on the middle of bottom of the list for 10, 12, 15, 16 weeks. Um, like one I was just looking at here that we didn't talk about, and I don't think it came up in our breakdown by format, mm. um, the um, There There by Tommy Orange from Vintage oh, and yeah. Trade mm-hmm. Paperback was on the pa- Trade Paperback bestseller list for 40 weeks in 2019. And I see that book a lot in people's mm-hmm. hands and at stores, but it wasn't Water Dancer, and it right. wasn't Testaments, and it also wasn't um, Crawdads. But it's a consistent sort of literary, you know, like nerd hit, I guess is what yeah. I'm, the well, word I'm trying the to Yeah, well, it won the National Book Award, right? Like that has to help or... Yeah, yeah. But it's the kind of book that does, but not all But not all the National Book Award That's winners true. make this That's list, true. I don't yeah. think. So there is this sort of um, almost like art house book that can't... The popular art house book is an interesting genre and this seems to have a particular mm-hmm. sales mm-hmm. trajectory, yeah. um, which I find interesting there too. I think the other thing is... Given what we've said before and been told before over time, how much a Penguin Random House the market has, it doesn't really bear out in their percentages. Like we've been told they have, what, 56 or 60% uh, of the trade market in the U.S.? Yeah. But mm-hmm. only 38% of the hardcover bestsellers and 32% of paperback, which then where is it? Is it kids? Is it the Dr. Seuss? I mean, seriously, I'm not joking. Like it could yeah. be all Dr. Seuss. But like when it comes to these high-profile high things... Harper Collins is twenty two point eight percent of paperback, which is within shouting distance, and then Hachette mm-hmm. is seventeen percent. Um, it's a little, it's a little more skewed. The next highest for hardcover is Harper Collins at sixteen percent, but it's not as top heavy on these. The top isn't as top heavy as I might have expected. I was more expecting a breakdown according to what we understand the whole breakdown uh, of trade to look like here. Yeah. I guess I wasn't that surprised by it because like looking at the hardcover list for the share in 2019, like Penguin Random House has 39.7% and HarperCollins has 155 at the next mm-hmm. biggest one. So PRH is still more than double yeah. on hardcover, the next biggest one. The paperback one, it does smooth out a little bit. Um, and that's interesting. Like paperback long tail is a whole other thing. Also, the be- the variability in total unit volume by format over time I thought was interesting. Like... I guess this is a hit cycle. So just to take one example, the best-selling format last year by almost 80 million copies was hardcover nonfiction. I guess that's becoming in Trump books. I'm just just to, mm. to just spit out something. But last year it was down 80,000 copies and then it was back up and then down like it's hard to fi- it's hard to fit a line to data to a lot. Hardcover fiction was up over last year, but that was down. But it's down since 2015. Trade paperback up and down, kind of flat, but with high variability. Mass market, which we've heard, is down over time. Isn't down? It's flat since 2016. But then from 2016 to 2017, it was up 55 million units. Like, what the heck is? Go- I can't. There's not a story I can tell myself yeah. there about what's going on. So. Maybe more of a question mark there even than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe having audio, digital audio and ebooks with some additional, can we peg some of these things? But boy, I found that num- 
that distribution less compelling to understand than I really mm. thought. I've got nothing to say. I don't. I don't know. I really yeah. don't know. Um, Put some shruggy man happening. Yeah, I mean, and I guess I wasn't <laughs> expecting to be quite so uh, shruggy about it there. All right, let's do another sponsor and then uh, kind of wrap up with a couple of cool things. Um, where do you want to go? <laughs> where do I want to go? Um, man, there's so many things. I'll start. You, you think about it. You think about it. I'll take the, okay. I think this, we're you talking about one. libraries. Mm-hmm. This is not a surprise, I think, in, in t- if you think about it all, but it is good to be reminded that libraries are popular, yes. but not just in the Q score way I've talked about before in the show. Like, does a library have the highest Q score of anything, really, in America? I'm not sure. Maybe like donuts. I think <laughs> libraries versus donuts is a tough beat. Um, <laughs> but libraries, more people went to the library than went to movies in 2019. Well, uh, on face value, you'd say, well, duh, but also not duh, because right. we forget this, because we don't track like we track box office. You know, there's not mm-hmm. an Avengers Endgame of the library to drive people out to. But it also, it's not close. That's, that's the lead to me. The average number of visits to a library, 10.5. The next activity, go to a movie at a movie theater, 5.3. Live sporting event, 4.7. Live musical, theatrical, 3.8. Boy, as someone who doesn't go to a lot of concerts, that one jumps out to me. It's like it's that. It's not that much less than a movie. Um, National Historic Park, three point seven visits. Museum, two point five. Going to a casino, uh, <laughs> not great. I think on the whole, two point five. See that one of these. One of these things is not like the other. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was casino. surprised that made it on the list. Yeah, because I was over here in the wholesome land of like, oh, people are going to lots of national parks. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm glad they didn't put like I don't know strip club visits or something. I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> Uh, amusement park or theme park, 1.5, and then visit a zoo uh, mm. coming in at 0.9. Also, I th- again, I have young kids, so my um, uh, recency bias about how many – mine is like 70, like 70 visits a year to a zoo. I would say that was fine. So it's not even close that the library yeah. is the I, – I, I guess here's my and, question to you. Or go ahead. You say what you're going to think, and I have a question for you about that. I would say I think this makes sense because other than – the national parks and those aren't always free. Yeah. The library is the only free thing that's, here. That's right. On this that's list. Right. So it's the only resource or entertainment option that is accessible to everyone or theoretically accessible to everyone if they can get themselves to a library or online to access the library's resources. But in terms of this, it's physical visits to the library. It's the only place that you don't have to spend a dollar to go inside. Yeah. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Like some museums are free, but not all of them. Definitely visiting a casino, you're probably spending some cash. Zoos and amusement parks, that's free. Sporting events is free. Live music, theatrical events, or sorry, those are all cost. These all cost awesome. money. Um, other than going to a library, so like not only do people like books, and not only do libraries have a high Q score, but they should be at the top. Of, like it's, it makes logical sense that they're yeah. at the top of this list because the, there's not a barrier. Like literally, there's not a barrier to entry. <laughs> The only thing that I thought maybe should have been – I was going to ask you this. Is there anything – is there any activity on this list that's not on this list that maybe should be? Um, if you had, I have got one idea, but does anything come to mind for you? No. I was thinking of like, you know, just – they have national or historical park, and so I was thinking about just like a park. That's, like what I, that's a, what's mine too because that's equivalent yeah. to a library. It's free. Right. It's publicly subsidized. It's available. Like it's, they tend to be around. Like a city park or yeah, – Yeah, anything like that. That's the one because it's a little – I mean, it's part of the virtue of the library is that it's 
no additional cost. It's not free because we've been told by email, thank you very much, that our taxes pay for libraries. Yes, we know. But there's no additional cost to walk into a library. Um, just like going to my local public park, there's no additional cost, even though that would be that would be the one I would like to see um, go on there. But yeah, it's a, and it's 2x, 2x times. Um, and I, I would wonder... I guess another one that I'd like to know, and again, you'd have maybe these would be numbers you could crunch. What's the cost? What is what's the cost per visit? No matter mm-hmm. who pays it, right? Ah. Like, mm-hmm. how how many dollars is the government and taxes per spend going to subsidize the library visit versus how much money is being spent per visit for these other things? Like, does the library even come out ahead when it's adjusted for cost on a dollar per dollar uh, visit for visit? Oh, that's basis? interesting. I don't yeah. know. Um, I'm guessing the casino. And sporting event and live music events are very expensive on a dollar per dollar basis. Zoos are pretty expensive, and amusement parks and themes are uh, the only mm-hmm. one I can see really competing with it. Maybe is a national historic park. Like for as much money as spent maintaining those things, yeah. What's the value proposition there? Because like a movie, that's that's pretty knowable, right? Like it's ten mm-hmm. to fifteen dollars. You can go to matinee and get a little bit cheaper. That's probably the cheapest of the any ticket that like the gate fee for any of these things, right? Yeah, the national parks it's usually like a a fee to get into a national park and the usually the um ticket or like your receipt that you put on your dashboard is good for 7 days. Yeah. Um and it's like 15 or 20 bucks for most parks. So depending it kind of depends also on how many people are in the car cuz you're paying by vehicle. Right, right, right. Well, and that's that's also unfair too because like there's like there's not that many national historic parks, like compared to how many libraries and movie theaters there are. So that three point right. seven visits seems kind of remarkable given and, the, the effort it takes I'm, to get there. And why, like now, I'm just down park yeah. nerdery. Like I'm in Leslie Nopeland here, but like, why aren't state parks on this list? I don't know. Maybe the data is not as good. <laughs> I don't know. Probably, you know, maybe because that. Um, well, I guess this is a respondent. You're asking people. Mm. You could have asked that. I don't know. Yeah. Is this who did this study, by the way? Is this a library study? I'm serious. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's because... a great question. I'm looking. Um, collected in December by a Gallup poll. Okay. Well, there you go. Maybe Gallup, Gallup, if you're listening, Mr. Gallup, Ms. Gallup, I don't know who you are. <laughs> um, add city parks, local yeah. parks to this list. Should we do a hero? Do we have a hero? Do we have a hero? Yes, sure we, we do. Oh, yes. Drag queens. Yes, the drag the drag queens are the heroes forever. Yes. Um so in just ongoing absurdity, um a Missouri legislator has introduced a bill that could imprison librarians who do a variety of things including um librarians could be imprisoned for having age inappropriate books on the shelves however you determine that mm-hmm. to be defined. Kelly Jensen wrote a couple great pieces about this for Book Riot. We'll have links to those in the show notes. One of the other things that a librarian could be imprisoned for if this bill were to be passed is for hosting a drag queen story hour mm-hmm. or allowing youth, I know, or allowing youth to check out books on LGBTQ topics. And drag queens um, have responded as I think we have come to be able to count on the drag queens. They're not going to stand down from a protest because they've already been through some things. Um, So drag queens and Kings are uh, staging a protest at the Missouri state Capitol. Um, They're going to, which is in Jefferson city, Missouri. They'll be showing up in full drag to show the senators and legislators quote that we aren't the monsters here, that all we are doing is providing a space for learning and getting kids excited about 
reading. Uh, so I mean, come on, Missouri. But the protest is planned for March 7th at noon. If you are in or yeah. near Jefferson Jeff City. City, Missouri, get on down there and support the drag kings and queens and you know, let your lawmakers know that you would not like to see this passed. Drag queens so, of Missouri, may your efforts succeed. May your efforts succeed with a lot of glitter. Lot. So what? as much glitter as you want. Yeah, all of it. However you want to do it. Um, You can find links to this story and all the stories we talked about on this episode of bookriot.com slash listen. You can scroll down. As you're scrolling down, you can see we have a lot of great podcasts there. Sci-fi fantasy, nonfiction, uh, uh, genre, mystery, uh, lib, our our regular host of the All the Books podcast, which talks about the most interesting books coming out that week. All get booked. Jen and Amanda personalized recommendations they talk about on the the air go check all those things out um we got got some good extra episodes coming up soon uh don't want to tip my hat quite yet but uh, look forward to those rebecca well done we'll talk to you later have a good one <laughs>